0: The Amazon Prime original series, Lore, returns October 19th with new true tales. Inspired by Aaron Mankey's terrifying podcast, this six-episode series includes two stories never heard before on the podcast. From an executive producer of The Walking Dead and an executive producer of The Exorcist, Lore explores haunting real-life tales that give rise to our modern legends and myths. Start the Halloween season with some of history's biggest nightmares. Serial killers, a cursed clock, a bloodthirsty countess, and more the scariest stories are true. Season 1 available now. Watch the new season of Lore October 19th, only on Prime Video. Hey everyone, this is just a friendly reminder that this is our Halloween episode, so it's a little darker than we typically go. If you have kids listening with you, this might not be the best episode to try. Check out MythPodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, it's our annual Halloween episode, and this year we're going north, to the Canadian wilderness, to seek out a monster with an insatiable hunger. The creature this week is kind of a harmless little vampire that just bounces around and really hates urine. This is Myths and Legends, episode 126, Hunger. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins, Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. It's October 31st, which means it's that one time of year we get a little scary. I don't want to give away too much for this episode, so we'll just jump right in with a young boy and his grandmother running along through the forest at night. Why are we here, Grandma? asked the boy, who was a member of the Cree tribe. He was young and she was old, but together, they might be able to make it. The grandmother pulled the boy along. He had been wrenched from bed the moment his mother had seen it. Son on the mountain, the old woman's daughter was a fighter. But when it came for you, she pulled the boy onward, urging him to move faster. She didn't want to think about that right now. She couldn't. The fort was their only option, because the fort had weapons. The grandmother trudged along through the deep snow, slowing only slightly, the moonlight lighting her way. Her own footsteps and the footsteps of the young boy crunched through the fresh snow in the silence of night. But then, she heard another pair. It came from behind them, from the direction they had come. In a hurry, the grandmother and grandson had fled with next to nothing, and if they hid in the snow, they would surely freeze to death. That is, if they survived. From the forest, The other footsteps picked up speed, coming for them. Wind whipped through the trees, barely masking its breathing. It would be here soon. Struggling and heart racing, the grandmother surged ahead a few more steps and reached back for the boy and found nothing but the wind. The woman lifted her eyes, following her own tracks in the snow. And there it was, standing there among the trees, the boy in its hands the Windigo had come for them. Months earlier, Son on the Mountain was packing her things. She was going to him. He said it was different now. Together, they had both grown up in a different world. Her people, the Cree, had still been masters of their own destiny. They ran free, building lives and families. She remembered the first time she saw Swift Runner. He was 6'3", broad chested, and he loved her. He was the pride of the tribe. He could craft weapons and snowshoes, hunt and trap. He was unstoppable and he loved her. She loved him too, but their marriage hadn't been arranged and so it would probably not be happening. Swift Runner had only laughed and said they'd see about that. They were at war at the time with the Blackfoot tribe and Swift Runner returned one day with a horse. The man who wouldn't be denied in war was the same in love. He presented the horse to Son on the Mountain's father, and that sealed the deal. Swift Runner and Son on the Mountain were married, and they were happy. Six children happy, actually. Son on the Mountain's tribe set up a tent for the couple, and one by one, they added to the group. For years, they were happy in the life both of them had dreamed of since they were old enough to dream, but... They didn't realize they were living in one of those times, where the old ways change in big ways, the kind of change where people had to be willing to pivot and recognize that the change was happening. Swift runner, a tall and powerful warrior and hunter, wasn't ready for that change. The times of wars between tribes were coming to an end, and with more English settlers pouring into their lands, food became more and more difficult to come by. With sadness, Sun on the Mountain watched her husband come home with less and less their children grew hungrier and hungrier. Then, the day finally came when he returned with nothing at all. After that day, he started falling into isolation. That the great hunter couldn't keep his own children fed was all he could think about. Son on the mountain asked if he had given any more thought to the offer. With a grimace, he nodded. The settlers in the area, the trading companies and the Mounties, were offering money to any capable cree to guide them through the wilderness. And so, Swift Runner agreed. Day in and day out, year after year, Swift Runner guided the colonists. He was quiet yet capable, surly yet professional. Then, one day a man came through their tribal lands with a medicine. At first, Swift Runner ignored it, but then his friends started to swear by the stuff, and so he tried it too. It was everything. Maybe it made him feel like he was back in the forest, running down a buffalo, stalking enemies in the high grass, about to raid a Blackfoot camp. Maybe it made him feel alive, like the future wasn't closed off, that his problems were insignificant, and that he could rise above them. Maybe it made him feel like he could do something different, even be something different. Swift Runner had no idea that this miracle medicine he had discovered was actually 160-proof whiskey. And soon, he discovered that, unlike the buffalo, whiskey was everywhere. It was technically banned in the territory, but it was easily smuggled in under the guise of being medicine. Swiftrunner's descent was a sharp one after that. As euphoric as the whiskey was, it made reality seem that much more grim and impossible to bear. He became violent with his wife and family, those that cared the most. He didn't even need to be sober to do his job, but that didn't matter. The more he drank, the more he needed to drink. Then, one day, he was fired. It was after he had been drunk for three months straight, according to the newspapers. Taking another drink, he stumbled to the fort. Slowly, he made his way to the next company looking for guides. But they also turned him away. Where to travel quickly, and now he couldn't find any job at the fort, guide or otherwise. He marched out with a gun, and days later, came back drunker than ever. As it turned out, Swift Runner had robbed a man of his pelts, went to the border and sold most of it for whiskey. He staggered back into the fort to one of his own tribesmen accusing him of the crime and, thanks to the alcohol and several quick-thinking men, just narrowly missed shooting the man before he was tackled to the ground. He was arrested by the Mounties after that and put under watch. At last, his tribe came to an agreement with the Mounties. They would exile him. They sent the once strong and kind swift runner to the north, about 25 miles, where he spent most of the summer and autumn sobering up. Via messenger, he sent an appeal to his tribe. He wanted his wife and children to come live with him. After some of the elders traveled north to check on him and see that he was, in fact, sober and docile, they agreed. Of course, Sun on the Mountain would have her choice, stay with her tribe or follow her husband into exile. I don't know her reasoning, but she chose to go with him and... That autumn, she and the kids trudged off north. Maybe she looked out on the forest, on the rising sun and the chill autumn air, and was hopeful. In the north, away from the colonists and the alcohol, maybe they could start over. He could hunt again, and she would raise the children. They could grow old together before the world caught up with them. In addition to the children, Sun on the Mountain's mother had decided to come along. She didn't trust Swift Runner, at least not the man the whiskey had turned him into, and she wanted to keep her daughter safe. As Sun on the Mountain looked back at her tribe in the distance, she had no idea that it would be for the last time. She wouldn't survive the winter, and a monster from legend, the Wendigo, would find them alone in the woods. we'll see what happened during those cold nights in the forest. But that'll be right after this. All right, now back to the show. Late next spring, a man lumbered into a Catholic mission at St. Albert. He was tall, 6'3" and they invited him in for a meal. The winter had been a good one, and they traded with the tribes in the area for the meat. As he ate, Swift Runner told his story. His family was dead, he told them. All of them, his wife, his six children, his mother-in-law, all gone. Apparently, they had starved during the winter. The priests looked at one another, then back to Swift Runner. The winter had been a short one, they said. According to the men who traded for the meat, Hunting had been abundant too. Furthermore, the man in front of them didn't look like he had just barely survived starvation. He actually looked like he was over 200 pounds and well fed. One of the priests stood from the table immediately and drafted a letter to the Mounties. The Swift Runner stayed with them until a few days later when the Mounties arrived. He had been perfectly normal during his stay except for the nightmares. Every night, without fail, the priest had been awakened by a screaming in a language they didn't understand. The visitor shouted as he slept, but they were only able to catch one word, Wendigo. Upon arrival, the Mounties forced Swift Runner to take them back to his camp, and as they approached, he pointed to a heap of dirt. That was his son, his oldest. He was the first one to go. Just before that, they had killed the dogs, but they were starving too there wasn't enough meat on them. Swift Runner explained that one by one, his family began to grow weaker. and Then he came. Swift Runner parted the trees, revealing the camp. I imagine one man vomited while the others started putting two and two together and tore their eyes away from the devastation to bind Swift Runner. According to most versions, sun on the mountain had been roused from sleep. They were used to the children crying out in hunger in the night, and sleep was their only relief. She had dreamt of something though, someone calling out to her for help. Swift runner was feet away from her, hunched over a fire and eating? She gasped, he was eating, he had gone hunting, he had gotten something, he had finally gotten something. She started to rise, and then she saw the blood. It was blood that came from where one of her children, their children, had been sleeping. She heard Swift Runner tearing raw meat off the bone, and she started to shake, that voice calling out in her dream. It wasn't a dream. She shoved her mother, sleeping next to her, and when the old woman didn't rouse, she shook her again. She whispered to her to please wake up, Something terrible had happened, Swift Runner, but Sun on the Mountain saw a look of terror in her mother's eyes the moment the old woman woke up, and a chill ran down her spine. Swift Runner had heard them, and he was rising with a mad look in his eyes and a hatchet in hand. Son on the Mountain pushed her mother, telling the woman to take the child closest to her and run, run to the fort, go. The grandmother didn't wait, She grabbed the boy next to her and pushed her way out of the tent into the driving snow of the northern Canadian winter. We don't know what son on the mountain said to Swift Runner as he lumbered closer to her. Maybe she was begging him to remember their life together. Remember how he loved her. Maybe it was a plea to spare the children. What she knew, though, was that those mad, hungry eyes she was looking into, the last eyes she would ever see, no longer belonged to her husband they were the eyes of the wendigo. We'll never really know what happened in those cold, dark woods that winter. According to Swift Runner's confession, he killed his wife, his mother-in-law, and his five remaining children, and then he ate them. When the tent fell silent, Swift Runner emerged, ax in hand, and did what he had been trained to do since he could hold an ax hunt, it took him no time at all to find the mother-in-law and son and drag them back, their body parts joining the others, the mounties found in that clearing on that spring morning. Now, even though Swift Runner has a written and signed confession, that's not the whole story. The chilling thing is that Swift Runner hadn't needed to kill his family to survive. He was once the best hunter in his tribe and, failing that, he was only a day's walk from emergency provisions at the fort there was no reason for him to do what he did. So what happened? I came across two versions in researching today's episode, though no one will ever really learn the truth. The first tells us that, slightly bereft of food, Swift Runner heard a voice in the shadows as the wind whipped through the trees and snow piled outside, a voice that told him what to do, that urged him to yield to the hunger, the voice of the Windigo. According to that version, Swift Runner nodded and the Windigo possessed him. And in that version, over the next several days, Swift Runner slowly murdered his family. That story corroborates with a skull found not far from the camp, cut nearly in half by an axe. With hunger satiated, Swift Runner returned to himself, surrounded by what remained of the only people he had left in the world and made his way toward the mission. The other version is Swift Runner's, the one that he told the priest's, leaving out a very crucial detail. Where his children began to die and, unable to get food, he and Son on the Mountain had to sit there and watch them. Maybe she couldn't handle the prospect of what had to be done for them to survive, but Swift Runner could. Apparently he had been in a terrible situation years earlier, where a hunting partner died on a hunt after the snow became so deep that they were trapped in a cave. He had been forced to resort to cannibalism then to survive, and maybe he told his wife about the incident whatever it was, according to Swift Runner, his wife ended up taking her own life. And he found himself again in that same choice he had made in the woods long ago with his friend. Die as a man or live as a monster. I say we'll probably never know what happened because all of what we know comes from a case file in newspapers published at the time. Newspapers written by colonists who really didn't understand Cree culture. I did a search for Wendigo, in 19th century Canadian and U.S. newspapers, and a lot of times I found the term, it was equated with someone being mentally ill, not with the very specific type of psychosis mentioned here. Swiftrunner's testimony consisted of simply, I did it. And the jury didn't deliberate long before sentencing him to Alberta's first legal hanging. A scaffold had to be built for the occasion. And over the next few days, a resigned and melancholy Swift Runner refused access to a priest, saying, quote, the white man has ruined me. I don't think their God could amount to much months after he returned from the wilderness. In negative 40-degree temperatures, at 7.30 a.m. December 20th, 1879, Swift Runner died. His body was buried in the snow outside the fort. Swift Runner is maybe the most famous alleged wendigo, but he was neither the first nor the last actual case of someone dying for the belief. A Wendigo is, broadly, a person who is consumed by hunger for human flesh, and they don't necessarily need to be in a situation where food is critically scarce. In other places, it's a tall, gaunt monster that keeps growing and can never be satisfied. In terms of Wendigo origin stories, I read one saying that a tribe was engaged in a bitter, endless war, and to gain the upper hand against their enemy, they did something unspeakable, One of their women agreed to a plan and left camp, heading straight for the battlefield. There, she found the blood of an enemy and drank. Imbued with powers, her transformation began, quickly taking over her entire body. An insatiable hunger grew within, consuming the woman to the point that she ate her own lips, giving herself a permanent snarl on her face. She became the Wendigo that day, and as she moved across the battlefield, she ate. And the more she ate, the more she grew, the more she needed. The warriors let her loose on the enemy, and within days, the war was over. The tribe rejoiced, except now, there was something out there in the woods. Something that wouldn't just come after them, but would, in a far more terrifying manner, infect their thoughts, turn them against one another, turn them into Wendigos too the woman who had saved them would never be able to return, not after the things she had done, which she had become. She was their savior, and yet, she would always be hunted. According to Cree legend, bullets are useless against a Wendigo. There are only two ways to end it, the first of which is with a hatchet, but I think you have to take off its head. The second way is using boiled animal fat, if you can somehow subdue the monster and force it to drink hot animal fat. Apparently, when someone turns into a Wendigo, their heart literally turns to ice. So if they aren't too far gone, and you can get them to drink the boiling fat, they will start to cough up chunks of ice. If, and only if, they cough up their heart, they will live. The most interesting thing I found about the Wendigo is not how many people died from being attacked by the beast, but by how many people were willing to kill to stop someone from turning into the Wendigo. Other than Swift Runner, the only other stories I could find from newspapers at the time were of people killing those they thought were Wendigos. In papers on November 3rd, 1899, there was a story of two men who were arrested for murder of their chief, because, according to them, he started acting violently, and, in a moment of clarity, begged them to kill him, or else it would spread. According to the arrested men, the chief then laid down on the floor of his tent, pointing to the spot where he wished for them to shoot him, and they did. The men claimed they had the support of their tribe, and the article didn't say how the charges were brought against the men, or what the outcome of the trial was. Only how cute it was that these two men had never seen a railroad before. There are more stories too, ones that are less suspect and more tragic. Like the man who heard a noise coming from the forest and saw the shape of a wendigo stalking among the trees, only to fire on it and discover that it was his foster father. As a result, the man faced charges for manslaughter. Then there's probably the most famous case, that of Jack Fiddler. If windigos were a disease, then Jack Fiddler was a surgeon. He and his brother killed them with precision. According to Jack, they killed 14 windigos over the course of his life. Jack even had to kill one of his own brothers when they ran out of food on an expedition. But it was their last one that got them into trouble. You see, there are many varying beliefs regarding windigos. In this particular tribe, it was believed that anyone who showed signs of becoming a windigo must not be allowed to breathe on anyone, lest they, too, become a Wendigo. Unfortunately, the only way to keep someone from breathing on someone else was to keep them from breathing at all. Jack had been born around the same time as Swift Runner, and so, by 1906, he was in his late 60s. But unlike Swift Runner, the Red Sucker Band, to which Jack belonged, avoided contact with Europeans. Going farther and farther north, Jack was the leader of his people, and he was known throughout the area as not only a powerful shaman who could keep his people safe, but one who could hunt down evil. However, the world was changing, no matter how far Jack and his people fled. And so, he was eventually arrested. There are varying accounts about the circumstances of Jack's arrest, but it's pretty clear that he killed his niece at the request of the girl's father, his own brother. As I said, belief in what caused a wind to go varied based on the region. And in the documents surrounding the case that would go to trial, the people testified that there was a belief that if a person died in a state of delirium, then they could come back as a Windigo. Regardless, he strangled the girl and then burned the body for three days to keep it from springing back to life. After that, he bid goodbye to his brother and returned home where, several months later, the Mounties rode into camp, shouting that he was under arrest. To say that there were racial factors at play at the time would have been an understatement, and many feel that Jack Fiddler couldn't possibly have had a fair trial under these conditions. I think it's fair to say he probably felt the same way. Well, he was out on a walk one day with his guards when he gave them the slip and ducked, running into the forest. By the time the guards had called for reinforcements and went into the woods, Jack was already dead. He had hung himself on a tree. His brother, also having been arrested, still went to trial for the murder. He was the girl's father, after all, and his story didn't match what was said in the papers. He said that his daughter was in deep pain and incurably sick, Sometimes he and Jack were called on to euthanize individuals who were beyond hope. They were doing a kindness. Jack's brother begged the court to believe him. It was his own daughter, but the court did not believe him, and he was sentenced to death. Despite the eyewitnesses that came from his camp and corroborated his stories, traders from a nearby company who testified on the beliefs of the sucker band, and missionaries from a nearby mission who spoke of the character of both men. It took two years, and the case exiting the public eye for a court to rule in favor of the brother when his case was brought before them on an appeal. Unfortunately, his order for release came three days after he died in prison, awaiting his execution. There's another narrative in the Jack Fiddler case, one where the government, that had long been trying to establish control in the North, saw an opportunity. With the leaders in custody or dead, they immediately brought an end to other tribal laws that conflicted with Canadian laws. And with the leaders in custody or dead, the Red Sucker Band was all but forced to join the treaty between the Native American tribes in the North and the British Crown. They had been holdouts for years. But when Jack Fiddler died, their independence went with him. You know, I started researching this episode with an idea about how this was going to go. I thought I was gonna speak on some of these horrifying instances and then decide between a theme, that there's a monster that could lurk in anyone, waiting for the right levers to be pulled, whether that's hunger, rage, or despair. Then I thought I was gonna talk about the terror of groups of people acting on superstition and fear, but it's really none of those things. When it comes to the Wendigo, I don't think that a monster lurks in everyone, waiting for one bad day to come out. People have been put through terrible conditions, and sometimes, They make it out alive and intact. Other times they aren't so lucky. When it comes to people acting on fear and superstition, I'll be honest. At first I bought into the narrative that Jack Fiddler was an unhinged serial murderer who thought he was a monster hunter. But when I dug deep into these accounts, I found a man who made the hardest possible choices for his people to lead them during the twilight of their independence in one of the most unforgiving climates on the planet. One final thing, I found an interview with a Native American elder Speaking on the subject of cannibalism and the Wendigo, basically, regardless of whether or not this actual creature was real, the experience was real. The terror was something people had to live with, and even if people didn't have a lipless monster possessing them, people did break down in the north during the winter, lashing out, attacking, even killing people. The Wendigo psychosis is a real culture-bound psychological disorder that thankfully has diminished in the past 100 years with urbanization. This is gonna feel like it's coming out of nowhere, but the elder brought it up in relation to these cases, and it seems like a good way to wrap up the story. Basically, the elder begged those listeners to treat people with respect and care. Be good to people and try to understand and help them through hard times. That was what kept those types of spirits at bay. That was the best way to fight the Wendigo. That's it for this week. Next week, we're staying in the north, but moving halfway across the planet to Finland, where we'll tell a story that's actually about as dark as today's story. We're finally getting into the Kalevala, the Finnish national epic, and telling the story of one boy's quest for revenge. So, I don't know if you know this, but we have another podcast called Fictional. It just wrapped up its third season, but it has a lot of creepy episodes if you're looking to keep it going. We did Call of Cthulhu in the first season, Frankenstein for the second season, and Dracula for the third season. So you can go check those out right now. The whole stories are ready to go. You can find the show at fictional.fm or by just searching for fictional wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the Jiangxi, a monster from Chinese folklore. The Jiangxi are vampires who will steal your life force. They are monsters covered in green and white mold from the grave and they rise again because they have unfinished business and their souls can't find rest. Or because it's just a better way to travel than being stuck in a box. Jiangxi means stiff corpse, and they're considered to be a hopping or bouncing kind of vampires. I've been told this is terrifying, but I just don't see it. The origin story goes that when workers were far from home and they died, their families couldn't afford to hire vehicles to bring their bodies home, but they could afford to hire a Taoist monk who could conduct a ritual and reanimate the bodies, and then teach them to hop their way home. The hopping comes because rigor mortis has set in, and the deceased people can't bend their knees. This comes from an allegedly real practice, where people were known as corpse drivers, and would gather up all the bodies of workers who had come from a certain area, tie them up on bamboo poles, with poles going under both of the armpits of the corpses, and then walk them back. They do so at night, because, well, it's horrifying, and people thought it was bad luck to see the corpses. From a distance, though, it would look like a line of corpses just bouncing along between two workers. So the vampire legend grew. And if you find yourself face-to-face with a Jiangxi, you have a lot of options. One that I'll personally add is walking away kind of quickly. But beyond that, they hate their appearance. So showing them a mirror will scare them off. A rooster's crow will tell them that dawn is coming. If you know acupuncture and have a ton of time, you can also nail jujube seeds into the acupuncture points on the back of the vampire. And I'll just list the rest of the things that bouncing ghosts hate in no particular order. Vinegar, glutinous rice, handbells, the blood of a black dog, a stonemason's awl, an axe, a broom, messy rooms, holding your breath, and the urine of a virgin boy. I am not really interested in knowing how they figured out that last one. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Today's episode was written and hosted by me, Jason Weiser, and the story editor was Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.